We are back in Romans today, and we are starting with Romans 8. We're going to be in Romans 8 for the next nine weeks, and I just wanted you to hear the entire context of Romans chapter 8 because it's so beautiful. And that was a beautiful reading, and I'm glad he did it. And so uh, we'll be getting to that in just a minute. We're going to be primarily in the first four verses, primarily today, and especially in verse 1. So you can turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, Before we do that, though, just a couple of quick uh, announcements. First of all, we're glad that you are here. You're all the people who have already finished the marathon, right? And then you came to church. I think that's how it works, right? No? Okay. Anyway... um, couple things in our community that you need to be reminded of. Next Sunday, the 26th, uh, on, in the evening is going to be our, our farewell celebration for uh, Sean and Kate Johnson. It'll be in this room here from 6 to 7.30. It's on the city, uh, which is our, uh, the church's um, uh, social um, media tool for you to be able to connect with us. And if you're going to be here, we would really appreciate it if you could register because we are going to feed you and we'd like to know how much uh, food to get. Um, I think we're doing Chipotle, just to kind of give you a heads up. I'm not sure, but uh, some people are like, oh, okay, I'll come now. But um, <laughs> Sorry, Sean. <laughs> but um, anyway, just to let us know, give us a little heads up. Uh, also, I want to remind you that on the city now, I do believe we have also set up the uh, event, which is Saturday morning, February 1st, that little um, two-hour breakfast that we're going to have, just informational about uh, prison ministry that myself and Collis Huntington are going to be doing. Uh, and then um, we're really excited about the next slate of Wednesday evening classes that we're going to be doing, which start not this Wednesday, but a week from this Wednesday on the 29th. There are three classes. There's a, uh, a discussion class uh, working its way through uh, the book of Philippians. Uh, there's a, book, uh, a, a class that Josh Prather is going to be teaching on uh, sort of um, really what is the mission and vision and all these things that we say around Redemption Church Uh, that we're gospel-centered, outward-focused, all of life is all for Christ, those things, what do all those things really mean? I mean, we say them and we think everybody knows what they mean, but we're going to go deeper with that. The third class is a class that I'm personally really excited about. I wish I could attend it uh, myself, but I'm teaching one of the other classes. Um, But it's something that I've I've been sort of on the periphery watching uh, the author of this class, Chad D. Miguel, work through for maybe the last year and, and start to put together the material and we've had long discussions about it. It's going to be really good. And uh, I decided that there's no way I could adequately communicate what this class is going to be about. Uh, so I asked uh, uh, Chad to come up and, and tell you about it. It's um, going to be called Restless Pilgrims. And so he'll give you an idea of what that means. Thank you. 
his in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson says this: For recognizing and resisting the stream of the world's ways, there are two biblical designations for people that are extremely useful: disciple and pilgrim. Pilgrim tells us that we are people who spend our lives going someplace, going to God, and whose path we're getting there is the way of Jesus Christ. It's interesting because we often say, or you often hear, that life is a journey. Well, what's fascinating about that statement is that actually has its origin in a very Judaic Christian idea that life is a journey. As Christians, we know, as Eugene Peterson tells us, our lives are defined by a journey. So in this class, we're going to explore the implications of that. What does that mean that this is not our home, but we're traveling to our home, so to speak? And what does that mean for our faith? What is some of the unexpected terrain that we'll experience along the way? And then we'll also look at some of those saints who historically have struggled in walking along the way, who've experienced both triumphs over the characters like Abraham and Moses and C.S. Lewis and Corey Ten Boom and Wesley Eisenhower, these saints that uh, have direct application to our lives today. And then lastly, we're going to look at some of the deep, intimate ways that God shepherds and changes our hearts as we yield to him and, and walking along the way. So um, hope you uh, come to this class and one of the classes. Thanks. Thanks, Chad. It, is it a spoiler if I ask you if you have walked the way yourself? Yes, it is a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> really screwed that up. Okay. Um, Let's uh, pray, and we will dive into Romans chapter 8. God, we do thank you that you call us. You call us to be disciples and pilgrims, and and, and that you call us to trust you and to have faith in you. you. You don't call us to any guarantees other than that your son has paid the ultimate price for our salvation and our deliverance. Other than that, it is a, it is a journey. It is, it is something that we travel, and... and uh, uh, even in the reading of Romans, when we hear that hope is not something that's seen, but hope is, is in you, uh, our hope is not that our circumstances will necessarily get better or go away, but that, but that you are with us in those circumstances, that we don't avoid tribulation or trouble or suffering, but that we go through it with you. And because we do, we're told that, that we can have hope because going through that suffering with you uh, creates in us and engenders in us uh, uh, the, the idea of, of perseverance and endurance, and that produces character in us. And by the power of your Spirit, we live with you, and we know you, and we do all things through you. So God, we thank you for that. And, and we pray as we open up Romans chapter 8 now, that you help us to see the truths that we're going to talk about today and for the next nine weeks that are profound, they're radical, they're life-changing. And, and some people will just look at these and go and, and say, there's just no way. There's no way that could possibly be true. It's so radical. It's so upside down. But it is true because it's in your son that, that this happens, that we are saved from ourselves by you, for you. So God, help us with that. I, I pray that our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds would be open, that your Holy Spirit would, would stir within us to hear your words, and, and God, that you would, you would speak powerfully today, and that to do that, you need to move me out of the way so that you are clearly front and center, that we can hear your words. So help us with that today. Holy Spirit, 
be with us today and stir our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I feel like I need to review a little bit where we are because we've been seven or eight weeks off of Romans. And so I want to kind of recap where we've been. It'll take a couple of minutes, but I think it'll be helpful because really Romans 8 is, a, is an important turning point in the book and we have to see where we've been and what Paul is doing to understand it. And, and here's one way to look at it, I think. Um, after introducing in the first 17 verses of, of the letter that this letter to the church at Rome by Paul is all about the gospel. It's the gospel. It, some people call it the fifth gospel or, or the gospel of, of Paul. After he introduces that, he goes into this into this section of the letter from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, that I would call the depth of sin. Where the gospel, which means good news, Paul, in this section of the letter, gives us the bad news. In, in order for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And he gives us the bad news, and he talks about the depth of our sin, our fallen nature, our sin nature, that, that we just have this radical proclivity to, to, to uh, curve ourselves inward on ourselves and, and go against any of the created order. that we, 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 We're looking for created disorder, if, if you want to call it that. But then in verses 21 through 26 of chapter 3, he goes into the depths of the gospel. And he says that in spite of this, and because of the love of God, we are saved by Jesus Christ through his sacrifice. And it's magnificent. Chapter 4 could be the depth of our faith as it discusses the importance of our faith. And chapter 5 could be the depth of our union with God where, where Paul talks about how because we now have this union with God, we are now at peace with God and we, we, we live in His grace and we can approach His, his throne of, of grace with boldness and confidence. And, and again, as I prayed, we have hope because of our suffering because that suffering produces in us that Greek word hupomene, which means perseverance or endurance or, or, or patience. And because of that, we are, we are beginning to develop the character that God wants us to have, not by our power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. And then we get to chapter 6 and 7. Most people say that these are parenthetical inserts uh, to deal with objections that Paul thinks people will have to this radical teaching about Jesus Christ and the gospel. He thinks that people will ask questions and push back and, and wonder, and so he goes through that and and, and it culminates in chapter 7, which I think are ma- there's, there's two passages in 7 that are magnificent that, that show a contrast uh, that, that really set up chapter 8. In chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, what Paul is talking about is living a life apart from Christ and, and trying to live up to some moral code and the fact that you can't do it. And he's speaking really autobiographically. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I wasn't able to do it. I knew what the law was, but all the law did was produce in me sin. I couldn't do it. In other words, what he's saying from verses 7 through 13 is, apart from Christ, I have no ability to win. I am defeated all the time. I live in defeat. I live in death. But then in verses 14 through 25, which some people even question if Paul is talking about his experience as a Christian, I think there's no other way to see 14 through 25, that he is a Christian, and not only a Christian, but a mature Christian because of what he understands about the gospel in verses 14 through 25. Those are those weird verses that some people think, like, it's almost like he was inspired by Dr. Seuss, and it's a little, it's, a, it's tricky to follow. It's, it's like 
the things that I want to do, those are the things that I don't do. And then the things that I don't want to do, those are the fi- things that I find myself doing. And he's back and forth, back and forth. And he's so, you, can, you can feel the frustration. But then it culminates. This, this battle between his flesh and, and, and what he knows is, is, is living for God. It, it culminates in verses 24 and 25 in, in a beautiful picture of what the gospel really is where he cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through his son Jesus Christ. And in that, what we discover is Paul is in fact talking about his own personal life as a Christian. Yes, Christians struggle. We still struggle. We just have the struggle in a new light and a new understanding and in a new power. And, and, and verses 24 and 25 point out what is absolutely necessary for you and I as Christians to live in victory. Number one, he cries out, wretched man that I am. That's Paul saying, listen, I really am as bad as Scripture says I am. I really am Here's, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Barney was wrong. I'm not special. I'm really bad. Okay? Paul had this amazing ability to know about cartoons 2,000 years later. Not cartoons, but big fuzzy dinosaurs. Anyway, he, he says, I'm really bad. All of us are really bad. That's what original sin has done to us. It's, it's created corruption in our lives. We're all really bad. None of us are anywhere near as good as we think we are. In fact, we're all a lot worse than we think we are. I think the, the worst thing that most of us will say about ourselves, the very worst thing that we might say about ourselves is, I'm really not that bad. And God would say, as lovingly as possible, yes, you are, and worse. Yes, you are. And Paul realizes that. He realizes, okay, I'm really bad. And then he says the second thing, who will save me from this body of death? That's, that's necessary because Paul is saying, I don't have any ability to save myself. You and I, at some point in our lives, even as Christians, we think that we're involved in our salvation. And if we're not involved, we think it's all us. This is Paul saying, there's nothing in me that can help save me. I need a a supernatural, miraculous intervention from God in order to save me. Wretched man that I am, I can't save myself how do I get delivered? How do I get saved? How do I get reconciled? How do I get redeemed? How do I know God? And he says it, thanks be to God through his son, Jesus Christ. He gives thanks and he says, that's how I'm delivered from my wretchedness and my total futility and hopelessness in the fact that I can't save myself. And that's what sets up Romans chapter 8, which starts with this amazing verse Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's no exception. It's anybody who's in Christ, there is now no condemnation. We're going to unpack all of what what that means. But all of chapter 8 is unpacking what he says at the end of 7. That I'm a wretch, I can't save myself, I've been saved by God through Jesus Christ, now I have no condemnation. All of Romans chapter 8. Is, is explaining that. But it's not just that there's no condemnation. I want you to understand, this is why I had David read the whole chapter. It starts with no condemnation. You heard him end. There is now no way to be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So no condemnation, no separation, and everything in between, Paul talks about how there's no defeat for us. 
In Christ, we can't lose. So Romans 7, 7 through 13 is, I can't win apart from Christ. Romans 7, 14 through 25 is, I can't but win in Christ, even when I fail. Even when you fail, we still win because of Jesus Christ. This is, this is a magnificent, magnificent truth. And, and when we're done with chapter 8, one of the things that I really hope that we'll all see is that the, the work of our liberation, the work of our freedom, the work of our victory, the work of the fact that we don't have any eternal consequences anymore for sin is all done not by us, not by some power in us, not because we willed it, not because we're trying harder, not because we're smarter, but because the Holy Spirit resides in us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us, the resurrected Christ in us. So far in Romans, the first seven chapters of Romans, the Spirit's been mentioned four times. In chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 5, and in chapter 7. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times. This is not an accident. Paul is really making a point. It, it reminds me so much of his writing in 2 Corinthians 3.17 where he says, Where the Spirit of, God, uh, the, of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is victory. There is life. There is redemption. There's a program on the computer uh, on the internet called Wordle. I had to get somebody to help me with it in order to be able to do this for you, but I think it's really powerful. It's a beautiful image. Um, we did Wordle where you cut and paste the text of Romans chapter 7 into their little machine. See how technical I am? Anyway, it, it eliminates all the words like and, the, and but, and, and look what it came up. These are, the, these are the most prominent themes and words in all of Romans 7. Look at it. Law, sin, and death. Now look at Romans chapter 8. Spirit, God, flesh. And the reason flesh is there is because spirit has victory over the flesh every single time, even when we fail. There's something about the imagery between 7 and 8 that this Wordle program did that in some respects makes me want to just walk off the stage now and go, think about that, and you're done, and we're done, and you got it. You know what I mean? And some of you are like, yeah, I'm hungry. But I get paid by the preaching minute, so we're going to keep going. Okay, hear me on this. There's two big ideas today that I want you to get. Th- these are the two big ideas. They're really important. Number one, you and I are no more loved on our best day than, than on our worst day in Christ. You and I are no more loved on our best day than on our worst day. Even on our worst day, we're still loved with a love we could never comprehend by God. And second of all, even when we fail, we're not defeated in Christ. Even when we fail, we are not defeated. So it starts with verse 1. There's no now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's great, but we need to understand it. We're going to spend an, a bunch of time on this. First of all, we have to understand that it is only in Christ. Paul doesn't say there's now no condemnation, period. He says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ. The Bible does not mince words about the fact that there, there's going to be some that are in and some that are out. There, there's wheat and tares. There's, there's, there's a division. There's going to be a separation. And we don't like that because it sounds intolerant. But the, the fact is that, is that uh, there has to be justice for sin. And it's been paid for by Jesus Christ. And we receive it by grace through Him. We don't make the payment. 
We don't receive the justice. We don't, rec- we don't have to pay the penalty. We don't have to pay the punishment. Instead, we receive the benefits of that because it's all done through Christ. But if we don't do that, we're in that group that's condemned. That's what the gospel is about. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that, that, that overturns the bad news of our sin. It's John chapter 3, verse 18, where Jesus himself says, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You're not heading towards condemnation for not believing in Jesus. You are condemned because you don't believe in Jesus. And he says, because he who is not believed... He has not believed. The reason he's condemned is because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's Jesus. Those are Jesus' words. I love Jesus as a teacher. He's so inspiring. There's some of his teaching. If you don't know him, you're condemned. And I, I, I don't say I, that. gives me no pleasure to say that. I'm trying to speak truth here. But for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And that word condemnation, okay, so what does that mean? We need to talk a little bit about that because a lot of people say, well, that means death. He's talking about death. You're dead. And yes, that's true. It means death. Especially it means spiritual death. You've been separated from God and you're living a life of death apart from God. But the word condemnation here, the Greek word, also carries with it a penal understanding in that you and I are going to have to do very hard work as a result of that condemnation. The word literally means punishment deserving of harsh endeavors. And, and of course, it's talking about hell. It is talking about hell. But it's also, it, it plays out on a couple of levels. Paul's also talking about, you know, all that stuff that you and I do, especially as non-Christians, but certainly as Christians we do it at times, but all that stuff that you and I do as human beings to try to please God, to try to work toward God, to try to eradicate that debt that we know we have to God and to society, he's saying, in Christ, it is not necessary. You don't have to do it. In other words, you and I don't have to pay penance. We don't have to do penance. Christ did it all for us on on the cross. Even when, and I've experienced this, and I still struggle with this, and I, and I want to get out of this uh, very badly, and I pray to get out of it. But, but even when, when you and I insist on feeling guilty about our sin, even after we've come to Christ, you know, you sin and then you still feel guilty even though we're in Christ, you know what? That's yet another way that you and I think that we need to help God with our salvation. There's no way that he could have done it all by himself. I'm going to have to help him. That's our pride coming out. No, we don't help him. We can't help him. There's nothing we can do. He did it all. Now, are we guilty? Yes, but Christ takes our guilt for us. He takes our guilt. He takes our punishment. takes our penalty. And he takes our condemnation. There's nothing else for us to do. So stop it. And, and I know, I know I, I've had people react to this before when I've taught it. Here's what one person, as best as I can remember, literally said, Frank, I know that may be true theologically. I understand that theologically. I get it. But it's very dangerous to teach that. You know why? You're never going to get anybody to be, behave morally correct. And you're never going to get anybody to vo- volunteer for ministry at church if you teach them that. Don't teach that. It's, it's dangerous teaching. And and my response is, I don't think that's true. Because once we really do understand the gospel, once we really do understand grace, we can't help but respond as Paul did 
in chapter 7, verse 25, when he says, thanks be to God. We respond in, in gratitude and thanksgiving. Not perfectly all the time, of course not. This battle's still there, but more and more and more. We respond in, in gratitude. And we begin to live a life by the Spirit that, that God calls us to. And you know what? Here's what I would argue. I would argue that the more people understand grace and the gospel, the less moral teaching we have to do, the less we have to ask you to volunteer because you're going to be responding to the gospel and you'll be saying, I want to live this life. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and I'm not treading on thin ice here because I know it's in the Bible. It's a lot of what uh, chapter 7 is all about. Moral condemnation only invites transgression. Moral condemnation, it merely invites transgression. Here's a great example even. Yesterday morning, I'm in the car with Darby. We're going out to a volleyball tournament at ASU, and she's telling me about there's this person in her life who's trying very hard to get her to do something, and I don't want to talk about what it is necessarily. It, by the way, it has nothing to do with sex. Don't worry about it. It's just she wants her to do something, and she keeps talking to her about how she's going to be a better person if she does this. And Darby's telling me, the more she presses about how I'm going to be a better person if I do it, the more I want to tell her I'm not going to do it. Moral condemnation merely invites transgression. That's what Romans 7 is all about. The law just stirs up our sin. We can't do it in our power. Our flesh is too weak. It can't be done. Our flesh is ill-equipped. This is why in our house, I've said this before, in our house when the girls were growing up, we didn't have rules. We had conversations. I knew the minute we instituted rules, they were going to start, little sinners that they are, they're going to start looking for ways to break them. So we had conversations. I think it worked better. Raising kids is hard no matter what, but I think it worked better. In fact, there's a little, little poem. About, I know that every one of you, every Sunday morning you get up and think, I hope Frank recites poetry or sings this morning. It's my favorite thing he does at church. Okay, here you go. By the way, it, it, it's, a, it's a one verse, and I think it's in a song somewhere, but I love the theology in it, and it could, it could really sum up our sermon today. Here it is. To run and work, the law commands. Now, I want you to hear that first verse, or that first line, to run and work, the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands, but better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The only place we can find power is in the gospel, in the, in the resurrected Christ living in us, in the Holy Spirit living within us. And here you go. That's why I don't fret about this teaching because it's not in my power. It's not in your power. It's in God's power. I don't have to worry about it. But also we should see here there is some tension. Sin deserves justice. Sin deserves condemnation. We're not allowed to just <clears throat> ignore sin and sweep it under the rug or, or, or pretend that it isn't bad. Sin is a violation of of God's holiness and ultimately it's destructive to us and to those around us and it, and it offends God and so there has to be justice and penalty there has to be and and because we're sinners because we're the perpetrators of the injustice against God and against others and against ourselves it would only be right that we would be the ones that would suffer the condemnation and the penalty yet we do not suffer condemnation instead our sin is given to the flesh of Jesus which we see clearly in verse 3 sin is condemned in Jesus's flesh Jesus got what we deserved and we're given the gift of freedom and life. This is, 
This is unbelievable. And, and yet I know this doesn't resonate with everybody. For Christians, we know it cognitively. Yeah, I get it. But, but we don't know it affectively enough. And we need to pray to know it affectively so that the Spirit thoroughly invades our life and, and, and we submit to the Spirit doing that. But for those who don't know Christ, for those whose, whose eyes haven't been opened and, and whose hearts haven't been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit, this really just bounces off of them. I know. The reason is because, and believe, I, first 27 years of my life, I was not a Christian. And I understand that most people do not have an understanding of sin that would allow them to think that they deserve justice or condemnation. They know they're not perfect, and they know that they probably mess up a little bit. A little smudge here or there. But but they would never think that they deserve justice or, or, or condemnation. And the reason is because for hundreds of years in modern society, we've been taught that If there's something that we do that's dark and evil, it's really not us. Somebody did something bad to us. We were oppressed in some way. Our circumstances were bad. We were dealt an unfair uh, 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 hand of cards in life, whatever it is. And and we've been told on top of that, it's been reinforced for years now, that we're basically good and, and that we're special and we're awesome and we're wonderful people and that we should be exalted. And then social media came along and only enhanced it. And that attitude is so deeply embedded in our fallen psyche that we don't even recognize it. We don't, as non-believers in the gospel, we don't even recognize how wonderful we think we are and how wrong we are about that. And so people say, you know, I don't know what the preacher's so worked up about. Maybe he does deserve condemnation, but I certainly don't deserve condemnation. I'm a good person. In fact, I'm a terrific person. Then comes the caveat, I know I'm not perfect. Everyone says that. Everyone feels the need to say that. I know I'm not perfect. But then they always add this, but I'm better than most. The way most people treat morality apart from Christ is they think it's the PGA golf tour that if you make the cut, you get to go on and play the last two days. And everybody, everybody, everybody is sure they're going to make the cut. There isn't anybody walking around going, I'm not going to make the cut. No, everyone's going, of course, I'm going to make the putt, <clears throat> the, the, the cut. Look at this schmuck over here. I'm better than him. I'm going to make the cut. We do what's called social comparison. And we can always find somebody who's worse than us. The problem is, is that you're looking in the wrong direction. You're supposed to be looking at Christ. Oh. You don't make the cut. The only way you and I make the cut is in Christ. And Romans chapter 8 is all about how we made the cut because of him, because of what he's done for us. And it's really simple until God opens your eyes to that truth. If you're not a believer, you're not going to believe it and you're not going to appreciate it. And so we pray for you. And I know that sounds condescending and arrogant, but literally that's what has to happen. That's what happened to me when I was 27 years old. People were praying for me. I was, I was the one who was arrogant and condescending, telling people I didn't need Christ. And then finally, the Holy Spirit worked in my life, and he opened my eyes, and, and he gave me a new heart, and I was able to see Jesus really is the gift. And that's what we pray would happen to you today if, if you're here and you don't know Christ. So that's verse 1. Now, verses 2, 3, and 4. Let me read those and just spend a little time talking about them. 
So he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then verse 3, which is magnificent. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul begins verse 2 with the word for, which means he's going to explain why there's now no condemnation. And, and, and there's a little contrast set up in verses 2 and 3 that we need to make sure we're aware of. The word law is used in both verses, 2 and 3. In verse 2, it's used in, in the sense that means a principle or an axiom or, or a general truth. But in verse 3, it, it, it is used to mean specifically the Mosaic law or some moral code that you're trying to live up to. Even if that moral code is something that you made up in your own mind that you thought would be, good at, would be one that you could live up to. That there's no necessary text for it, but you have a moral code that you try to live up to. Okay? So in verse 2, he's talking about the principle of sin, the law of sin, meaning the principle of sin. And the principle of sin is that you're in bondage, slavery, condemnation, and death. But the law of the spirit of life, the principle of the spirit of life, is the gospel. It's grace. It's, it's God doing what, what no other religion or philosophy or worldview teaches in that he reaches down, not because of us, but in spite of us, and grabs us and lifts us up and loves us and saves us through his grace. And it's really important to see in verse 2 also that the word freedom is specifically set up in opposition to sin and death. That, that, that sin brings about death, but the spirit of life brings about freedom. And it's also important to understand the tense of these words and these verbs is that we're not headed towards one or the other. If we're living the life, uh, 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 living the life by the spirit of life, by the Holy Spirit, we're not headed towards life. We are in life. But if we're living by the law of sin, we aren't headed towards death. We are dead, just like we are condemned. You're dead. You're dead. So Paul says, in sin we're slaves to bondage and death, but Jesus sets us free from both. And then in verse 3 when he talks about the law, he is specifically talking about the Mosaic law or a moral code. And he's not saying that the law is bad. Paul says the law is good. Jesus said the law is good. The problem is is that the law can't save us. Verse 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. And here's kind of the picture that Paul is painting here. It's one of the pictures he's painting. And what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, I know you're trying. We're all trying. Everybody's trying. We might be trying different things, but we're trying. We're we're trying something, anything. And we're working so hard. We're trying so hard. The problem is you can't get there. Have you ever placed your faith in something other than Christ, like education or, or a promotion or a person or a relationship, and then you got it and you found out that after the first month it wasn't that great? It didn't save you or deliver you or bring you the happiness that you thought it would? All of us have experienced that. But we work so hard at those things. And, and maybe it's not even that we're working on religious piety. Maybe that's not it. Maybe we're working hard at spirituality, which is really just another way to say that I'm just trying to make myself happy. Or maybe we're working on indulgence. 
or irreverence or rebellion. Or maybe we're working on political salvation, which, by the way, never works. Or maybe we are working on education, which is not bad, but if it's your Savior, you're going to be mighty disappointed in that. Or maybe it's a cause. If I just get the right cause in my life. Whatever it is, whether it's the Mosaic Law or it's the law of you, and all of us have a law, all of us, every single one of us has a law that we say that we try to live by no matter what it is. The problem is we can't do it. Even the law that you've set up for your own life, I like this about Christianity, I like this about uh, Islam, I like this about Oprah, I like this about whatever, and, and I'll take this and this, this is what I'm living by, my life by. Guess what? You can't even live up to that, and you're the one who set up the law. You can't do it. You're a hypocrite, just like Christians. Everybody calls Christians hypocrites, and we're the only ones that admit it. But we're all hypocrites. All, none of us have ever lived up to our ideal of what we're supposed to live up to. Paul's saying that. God did for us what the law, weakened by our own flesh, can't do. Give yourself to Christ. This is one of the most fabulously insane verses in the Bible. It's also insanely fabulous. You see, the law has a perfect standard. It holds it up to us. It reveals the character of God to us. But the problem is it has no power to give us the character of God. That's the problem with the law. It's good. <clears throat> Here's what the character of God looks like. And you should try to live up to that, but I'm not going to help you. And in fact, by showing you this law, your, sin, your, your flesh is just going to rebel against it. Nothing wrong with the law. Even Jesus holds the law in high regard. Jesus even said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. The problem lies in the weakness of our flesh and that the law can't help us. But the power of God through Jesus Christ does what the law and our flesh could not do. That's why, here you go, that's why we need God to intervene. Thanks be to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul is recognizing in 725, God intervened in my life, and I'm thankful for that. And God always gives us what we need, which, by the way, is Him. We think we need other stuff. And it's not that those things are bad. Money's okay. Relationship, status, influence. Those things are all fine and well and good if kept in the proper perspective. The problem is, is that we think we need those things to the extent that they get in the way of our relationship with God. Jesus always gives us what we need, which is Him. And He gave us, he gave us Him on the cross and resurrected. And verse 3 is, is where sin is condemned, where justice for sin is meted out. It's, it's condemned in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, in His flesh, not in us. Therefore, we're not condemned. We don't get what we deserve. And, and, and here's something to think about. This is a little bit weird to say it out loud, but it's true. This was very hard on Jesus. You understand that? He, he, he was crucified, which was violent and horrific and graphic and awful and painful and miserable. And then the wrath of God was turned on him as he became sin and sin was crucified in him. It was not a pleasant experience, but it was better for us that it was him. Do you understand that's the gift? It was better for us that it was him and not us. That's the miracle and that's the gift. And if you haven't come to Christ yet, that should call you. That's God telling you, 
Look how much, no one and nothing is ever going to love you the way I have loved you. I've given everything. Grace is the best. Here you go. We get grace, sin gets justice, Jesus gets the penalty. Pretty good deal. And Paul says this was done in Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, there's no, there are phrases and words in Romans 8 that we could spend all day on. This is one of them. And there's no time to do it. But let me just say this. Paul is very careful when he says this. He wants us to understand that Jesus came in the flesh because he had to. But it wasn't sinful flesh. Because the sacrifice had to be perfect. Here's what Paul's doing. He's trying to help us understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Both at the same time. Which I know is hard for some of us to... to, we, We struggle to get our minds around that. And we should. I mean, simple math tells us this is wrong. One plus one doesn't equal one. But in Christ, it does. And Paul is, is pushing back against the possibility of any heretical teaching that, that might say something about modalism or, or docetism or any of those other isms that, that they came up with. No, he's saying God is fully man and fully... I'm sorry, Jesus is fully man and fully God. And then verse 4. As a result of condemning sin in the flesh, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us as we walk in the Spirit. Now, here's another one of those things. People have debated this for hundreds of years. What does that mean that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us? Two options that people talk about. One, is it the new life that we as Christians live on the basis of Jesus' work in our lives? In other words, when we walk by the Spirit, fully 100% by the Spirit, there's no way we can transgress the law. Therefore, we fulfill the law in our walk, in our journey with Christ. Is that it? Or does it refer to the fact that the full penalty and payment for sin has been met at the cross? Jesus said, it is finished. The law has been fulfilled. Is that what, what it means? And here's one of those times when I would argue that it's really both. At least for sure, both are true. We know that both are true. The law was fulfilled on the cross in regard to sin. It was paid for. Justice has been rendered. The penalty meted out. The cosmic and eternal consequences of sin have vanquished all in Jesus. That is absolutely true. But we can also not possibly even, de- even come close to denying that as Paul explains in the next four verses, verses 5 through 8, when we do walk only by the Spirit of God, we will fulfill the law. Here's how the, the lead pastor over all the redemption congregations, Tyler Johnson, says it. I love this phrase. He says that when we walk by the Spirit, we naturally, in a supernatural way, fulfill the law. We naturally, supernaturally, fulfill the law. I'm not saying we're perfect. Hello, Romans chapter 7. There is that struggle. But to the extent that the Holy Spirit reigns and rules in our life, that's the extent to which we will naturally, supernaturally, fulfill the law of God. John Stott, the great preacher, said it this way, God condemned sin in Christ so that holiness might appear in us. You see, we have to to get our arms around the idea that Christ is the object of our faith and holiness is the byproduct. So many of us want to go for holiness without understanding that it's a byproduct of the object of our faith. That has to come first, faith and trust in Jesus. Now, we'll talk a lot more about 5 through 8 next week, but I want to read it for you and make one point and then make two quick points of application and and we'll be done. So here's what we'll kind of look at next week. It's Paul unpacking this idea that we're going to 
fulfill the law as we walk by the Spirit. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the, um, uh, according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you can look at it this way. In verses 1 through 4, not only do we have no condemnation in Christ, but then in verses 5 through 8, we also now have the power to overcome sin. So the penalty of sin is paid for in verses 1 through 8, and we now have power over sin is what verses 5 through uh, in 1 through 4, and then 5 through 8 is telling us that we now have power over sin through the Holy Spirit. And understand, Paul telling us that the spiritually, Paul is telling us that the spiritually dead person has no ability to respond to the things of God, and therefore will not experience peace with God, nor life. He's a spiritual corpse, unable to do anything. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher and author, Um, in trying to explain what Paul is saying here, tells this really interesting story. It's a classic case of of the lack of spiritual understanding, and he finds it in an incident from the lives of William Wilberforce, who was the man who led the movement to abolish slavery a couple hundred years ago in, in Great Britain, and William Pitt the Younger, who at one time was the prime minister of England, and the two of them were actually very good friends. Wilberforce was a Christian, and Pitt was only a formal Christian. In other words, Pitt was a Christian in name only, and he adds, like so many of the other Christians of that day. However, these two parliamentarians were very good friends, and Wilberforce was concerned for his friend's salvation. He knew, he, he knew that Pitt was only a, a Christian in name. In those days, there was a great preacher in London whose name was Richard Cecil. Wilberforce thrilled to his ministry and was tr- constantly trying to get his friend Pitt to go and hear him preach. Pitt kept putting Wilberforce off, but finally after many invitations, Pitt agreed to go. Cecil was at his best, preaching in his most spirited Sean Myers manner. I added the two words Sean and Myers. Wilberforce was ecstatic. He couldn't imagine anything more enjoyable or wonderful. He was delighted that Pitt was with him and couldn't wait to talk to him. But as they were leaving the service afterward, Pitt turned to his friend and said, You know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Clearly, Pitt was deaf, was as deaf to God as if he were a physically dead man. We are made alive by the Spirit of God, and that's when we can hear God. So, couple points of application. I want you to hear these. Really important. Number one, it's something I mentioned earlier. I want you to hear this because I struggle with this too. I know how hard this is for all of us. In Christ, you and I are not guilty. And again, I know we need to be careful. We are guilty. Our sin makes us guilty. And in fact, God gives us that feeling of guilt, which is good because it's one of the things that drives us to him. 27 years ago, when I became a Christian, if it wasn't my sense of guilt for my sin, invading my, my life by the power of the Holy Spirit, I might not have turned and cried out, who will save me, thanks be to God. So guilt is needed, guilt is good, but in Christ, you and I are not guilty. 
And so Paul says, once we've cried out, wretched man that I am, thanks be to God, he's saying that those self-condemning, unproductive religious feelings that we all have can be released. They're gone. We're free. Those feelings of condemnation will only hold us back. And I know this is hard. I'm going to use a movie to illustrate this. I, I, I know I use a lot of movies, but it helps me, okay? The movies are more creative than I am. But, and by the way, it's not The Godfather, so relax. Um, I know I use that a lot. Here you go. It's a movie called Goodwill Hunting. And I will tell you, it's not one of my favorite movies. It's not, okay? I don't recommend this movie. It's like on my top 100 movies not to watch, okay? But there are two scenes in this movie that I really like that make a point. One is when Will and Robin Williams... You know, Matt Damon and Robin Williams are sitting on the bench outside, and, and Robin Williams really gets after Will and says, you know, you think you know me, but you really don't. You've read the same books that I have, and so that means that you think you know me. You don't really know me. You've never really gotten to know me. I love that. There's, there's, there's the gospel message all over that scene. The other scene in the movie is when Will is explaining to the therapist Robin Williams about how when he was a kid his father used to beat him relentlessly with a wrench. And, 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 and Will had these feelings like that there must have been something, I must have had issues to make my father do that. And Robin Williams is trying to tell him, listen, the reason your father beat you is not because you have issues, but because he has issues. Now, does Will Hunting have issues? Of course he does, but not in this case. The reason his father was beating him was because the father had issues. And, and, and Robin Williams is trying to make him see that. He's saying, listen, he beat you because he had issues. And then he started to say to him, Will, it's not your fault that your father beat you. It's not your fault. And Will is going, yeah, I know. And then Robin Williams would go, no, it's not your fault. And he'd go, yeah, I know, I get it. It's not my fault. No, 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 no. It's not your fault. Okay, okay. Do you see what's happening here? Will gets it cognitively, but he doesn't get it affectively. He hasn't appropriated it to his soul. He hasn't appropriated it to his heart. This is the problem that most of us as Christians have when it comes to guilt. We get it cognitively we get it intellectually we understand we're not guilty oh yeah i get it frank okay okay i get it i'm not guilty okay i'm not guilty but what we really need to do is get it affectively it needs to penetrate deep into our soul we need to pray for each other that the holy spirit would drive that truth into our soul and live guilt-free oh that's dangerous frank no it's not if we truly lived gospel guilt-free Imagine what this church could be. Imagine what all churches could be as we respond to the love of Jesus Christ. Understand, you are no more loved on your best day than your worst day. And no matter what you do that fails, you are not defeated. No guilt. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The second thing, I keep coming back to verse 3. It's just amazing. God did for us what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. And he did that by sending us his son. Let's just admit, guys, you, you tough, macho guys, there's like three of you out there I know. My brothers. Anyway, we all love love stories. Even you tough guy, we love a good love story, right? We love it. We're inspired by it. We're moved by it. 
We admit it. We claim that it's the onions that are making us cry when our wives or girlfriends see us crying during you got mail or something like that. But we love a good love story. What is the best love story ever? What is it? Is it, is it Romeo and Juliet? Is it Pride and Prejudice? Is it, is it Les Mis? Is it the Hunchback in Notre Dame? There's a couple of you in this room that will appreciate this. I was alive in 1970 when a movie called Love Story came out. Okay, Ryan O'Neill and Ollie McGraw. Oh, man. People, would, people went gaga over this movie. Oh, love story. <laughs> that thing was worse than Goodwill Hunting. If you, have to, if you have your choice between one or the other, please watch Goodwill Hunting, okay? It's awful. Well, it's just so here you go. The only love story worth giving your soul to is Jesus on the cross. He gave everything. The Father gave everything. And in chapter 8, Paul's mission is to make it perfectly clear. God loves us so much that he gave everything he had, his only son, so that you and I have absolutely no defeat. We only live in victory. No condemnation. No separation. No defeat. That's the gospel. And we're going we're gonna to take communion in just a second. Sean's going to come and lead us in that. The other Sean is going to come and lead us in the music. If this is the day that the Holy Spirit has opened your heart to this, it could be the day that you take your first communion. And it would be a great day. And I pray that that's happening for somebody here today. The gospel is just the best. Grace is just the best. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've done for us because you loved us first. We love you back. God, we praise you and we worship you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you that Paul has recorded it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.